Hey everyone, what you're about to hear is an After Dark episode featuring Devinder Hardwar and Richie Brave from BBC Radio talking about Steve McQueen's small act series of films. We'd originally intended for this week to be the first week that After Darks went Patreon exclusive, uh, but in fact, this conversation was recorded a couple weeks ago, uh, and we're just releasing it now due to scheduling reasons. And so uh, we decided to release this one for free, make this one the last After Dark that's released on the Slash Homecast main feed. If you want to get After Dark episodes like this in the future, head on over to patreon.com slash film podcast. This will be the last one that's released on the main feed for a little bit. Uh, but thanks to all of our patrons over there at patreon.com slash film podcast for making episodes like this possible. Thank you for listening. Uh, this is a great conversation. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to a special Slash Filmcast After Dark episode where we'll be reviewing Steve McQueen's small act series of films, which are currently streaming on Amazon Prime Video. I'm Devinder Hardwar, your regular co-host, and joining me today is Richie Brave, a presenter, broadcaster, commentator on BBC One Extra, BET Channel 4, all over the place. Richie Brave, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing, look at that for an intro. I am doing great. Really good to be here and have this conversation with you today. Well, thank you so much. And can you tell us a bit about what you do? Because I've been following you on Twitter for a while, and I just see I see you working on so many things, but I really appreciate your perspective and the fact that you're having real conversations about mm -hmm. life you know, in Britain right now. Yeah, thank you. I mean, for me, a lot of what I do is red hot Twitter fingers, obviously. <laughs> bit of a social <laughs> justice warrior. They like to, what did someone describe me once in um, a right newspaper? A woke warrior, I think is what I was describing. I mean, as. that sounds pretty good to me. I they mean, keep using these words and we're like, okay, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that pretty much summarizes what I do really. So kind of just exploring the realities for black people in Britain um kind of speaking about them my radio show um is a talk show on one extra so we play some music but for the most part it's exploring mm -hmm. the realities for you know young black people in britain and also my podcast series was about um intersectionality within a black community so it's being black and being trans or being black mm -hmm. and experiencing grief being black and being you know a young parent so kind of just looking at you know all of the all of these multifaceted experiences and how they intersect with black identity because there's a specific cultural experience right so there's an ethnicity mm -hmm. side of thing um side of things if people are listening and they're not from the uk obviously yeah. you know there's black british but in black britain there are west indians there are south americans there are west africans east africans south africans etc so it's just like understanding that you know there, there is a multifaceted experience here and we kind of explore mm -hmm. that and look at some of the bridges between the two gotcha and your lens honestly seems like the best way to approach the small act series too because this is a this is a series about the west indian community in britain you know in the 70s and 80s which first of all i, I just want to say my family is west indian i was born in guyana in south hey. america yeah man and i know you are too you're a guyanese so yep. shout out <laughs> yeah definitely I'm very proud i a pro guyanese man <laughs> oh man hearing the accents in these movies it felt like it's wild i've never never heard it real before you know yeah, so yeah. i told my parents to watch this and they were they were just having a wild time but uh i do, i want to say up front too my experience is very different because uh, my family is south asian so we are uh, Indo-Caribbean, I guess. Mm. Well, there, there are a couple different labels people place. But what I love about the West Indies is that it is a product of colonialism. You know, it, it is that mixture of bringing in people from all over the place, whether they wanted to or not. It is the best and worst of colonialism, I think, mm. right? Because 
um, there are Chinese immigrants, there are South Asian immigrants who came over as indentured servants. Slavery was still a big thing. And I actually know people who they can trace their families back to, you know, the slave riots in Guyana. That's how kind of recent and how fresh all this yeah, is. Yeah, that's for my us. family. <laughs> directly, we have <laughs> directly, you know, yeah, direct direct stories. And you know, there's still issues when we're looking at what happens in the Caribbean. Um, mm -hmm. There's still issues in the Caribbean when it comes to racial tension, racial divide, anti-blackness, etc. So I think yeah. you know sometimes the, the, we can have a real like, and I think this is probably what Smallax speaks to in some ways as well. Mm -hmm. We can have this really we can have this view of the West Indies like it's homogenous. Well, actually, like there are lots of different people from different racial backgrounds. So ethnicity-wise, they might be from, you know, Guyana, Trinidad, but you can be Indo-Trinidadian, you can be mm -hmm. Afro-Trinidadian, you can be Chinese, Guyanese. And, you know, there's there's some divides in some of those communities as well. Most definitely, most definitely. Yeah, yeah. so that, that's why I'm really happy you acknowledge the difference because there is definitely mm -hmm. one there. So there's this kind of golden thread that ties us all mm -hmm. together, right? And and essentially, there are also things that make us different. Yeah, that's a story. I guess it's it's just a very human story, right? Like mm. we're all we're all together, but also for whatever reason, people make their tribal sort of uh, separations. And Guyana, as a country, we don't really hear about that too much in America. It's best known for Jonestown and for uh, Jim Jones. Uh, yeah. And there have been many stories about that. Um, there's actually a really good documentary recently too that I've been meaning to watch. My parents were going; they were in college in the like village right next door when that all went down. So wow. it's a, it's a crazy thing. And they like, they have fresh memories of it too. Cause they, they saw the news and they saw like the you know, this crazy bunch of white people uh, in the jungle, like real, everybody was wondering what they were up to. And yeah. uh, it, it's just a sad thing. But what I love about the small act series of films is that it is, first of all, we've never gotten this perspective on the West Indian community, certainly in Britain. I didn't think really anywhere, yeah. you know, like this is, the community that's trying to survive, um, they're living in a world, uh, in a country that doesn't want them there. They're, you know, they're dealing with severe racism, um, a lot of discrimination. But I think at the core of all of these films is the idea that the West Indian community can come together and can kind of take care of each other. And that's something I really, really appreciate. Yeah. And interestingly, you talking about them not wanting us here. Um, historically yeah. in Britain, we were invited here. So the British government following the World War, um, they were having issues with their transport system and their um, kind of medical system. Obviously, we had the NHS, etc. And they brought West Indians here. They asked them to come over. They invited mm -hmm. them here to help support those systems. But I think they invited us here with a view that we'd only um, take up certain jobs and we wouldn't educate sure. ourselves sure. with the systems that exist. Um, and also I'd urge people who are listening to this now to look up the Windrush scandal. So essentially for people that don't know, um, it was West, it was the West Indians who were invited here during the Windrush period. Um, and Smallax speaks to that, who were essentially told that they don't have the rights to be in this country anymore. And they were being sent back to countries that they hadn't been to in 50, Crazy. 60 years time. And their children- and that, that was a recent countries. scandal, right? Yeah, that yeah, 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 it was mm -hmm. recent. So yeah, I'd urge people to look that up. It's, you invite people here, you invite my community here, and then mm -hmm, essentially mm -hmm. you just disrespect them. Um, and people died as a result of that. So, you know, it feels like a scandal that people were removed from the country, but also this resulted in people's deaths as well. It's just a horrible, mm -hmm. horrible situation. Horrible situation. And um, it, it is, a, I, I guess it was kind of timely how Steve McQueen produced the series yeah. um, because it comes on the heels of that, but also it comes on the heels of 
you know, the Black Lives Matter protests in uh, across the world. And yeah. it seems like issues and the issues black people are facing in in every country, I think, are on everybody's mind right now. So I, could, I can't really think of a, a piece of art that really articulates what is happening right now more than these series of films. Can you tell me, Richie, what do you think of Steve McQueen as an artist? And what did you think of his previous films? I think for me, um, I enjoy the way Steve McQueen portrays uh, a variety of black experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hate like this sounds very like black people aren't a monolith. And I guess people sure, use that sure. as like a general term to throw out. But I don't even mean it in a buzzword way. I mean, like genuinely, we have various experiences. And I think it's really important that, you know, the media have a, a duty to provide varying stories of our lived reality. And I feel like Steve McQueen is someone who delves into that. And I, that's what I've enjoyed most about his films, even things like Widows, you mm-hmm. know, like. It's a brilliant movie. Yeah, and a black person wasn't the first one to die. Do you know what I mean? And we're mm. we're not the sidekick in that film who, you know, is the butt of the jokes and is just there to kind of support people. There, there was real kind of dynamic characters in that film who were black, mm. and I think that's what's really important. And even if you look at you know some of his other films, um, I mean, for what I, I'm, we don't always this name that we should never speak of, but even Kanye's, Kanye West all day and stroke, I <laughs> feel like Don't that. summon him. Don't summon him, please. Yeah. yeah, no, no, but not him specifically. But if you look at the artistry of Steve McQueen and what he was able to create, and for some people, they don't like slave films, but the way Steve mm-hmm. McQueen um, directed 12 Years a Slave. And there's a scene in there that stuck with me. And it was the guy, the man who was being noosed. He was hung by a noose on a tree, but he was on his mm-hmm. tiptoes to keep him alive. And what Steve McQueen did in that film is he usually that would be a really short scene. Right. But he just kept that scene. He just elongated that scene. And there were people kind of like walking past him. Some were paying him attention. Others weren't paying him attention. And it kind of reinforced that this stuff was normal. It wasn't it, mm-hmm. it wasn't out of the ordinary to see somebody treated like this. So I feel like Steve McQueen very cleverly embeds some of these messages into his films. Um, I, you know, and I love that, to be honest. And I think he held the Small Act series with great care. And not everyone is always going to be happy about it because essentially no one's going to be happy with everything. But I think mm-hmm. he did a lot of narratives justice. I think it's important to note, Richie, by the way, like he followed... 12 Years a Slave, which is an Oscar-winning movie. He got so much acclaim for that film. He followed it up with, uh, there are a couple shorts, there's the Kanye music video, and then Widows, which on the face of it, I think a lot of people were like, why is he doing, you know, a heist movie? It's like it's like a simple genre movie. Whereas I think that movie, what is so brilliant about it is that it is exploring, you know, issues of sexism. Mm. It is a movie that has direct statements about racism and the way the rich and the poor live right next to each other Absolutely. in Chicago. There's the brilliant shot in that movie of just the camera on a car, right? Yes. Gets and three minutes later, you know, he goes from, you know, this uh, kind of rundown community where he's holding, hosting uh, a fundraiser. Three minutes later, he drives to his giant mansion, yep. you know, in a next nearby neighborhood. And that, that alone says so much. So I do feel like, man, Steve McQueen, first of all, he's using his cachet, to tell very important stories, even though Widows is basically a, also a kick-ass genre movie. And then he goes on to produce these small acts films, which is, you know, five, five movies all about a community that we rarely see represented. And I know he is West Indian as well. So this is all near and dear to his heart. So I just appreciate him so much for 
kind of using his clout right now yeah. to tell these stories. And yeah. you can do, I, I mean, uh, can we swear? Oh, we can't swear. Yeah, um, man, go ahead. You can, you can do what the fuck you want, you know? And this whole like <laughs> thing about black, you've produced this film about slavery and why would you go mm-hmm. and do this afterwards? Well, actually, I'm a creative and I'm going to create whatever the fuck I want to create. And this whole thing around like, uh, I need to be put in a box now. I, cre- I'm, mm-hmm. I can only create these kind of movies. For me is a problem because it's how you restrict black creativity. And that is why the Small Act series is so important. And I don't think people saw some, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead too much here. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like people saw Small Acts for what it was. So if you look at Lover's Rock, for instance, and there was some critique mm-hmm. around Lover's Rock. I mean, even me, I didn't particularly like the rape scene, to be honest with you, or the attempted yeah. rape scene. Yeah. The attempted rape scene, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm giving spoilers away here, aren't it's, I? Yeah. That scene, it's totally fine. Well, by the way, and for our discussion, just so everybody knows, we're going to try to stay spoiler-free because I know a lot of people haven't seen these movies. So, you know, I just want us to have the opportunity to get people excited for them, right? Yeah. I mean, and there was there was a particular message in that that I think, of course, is one to be mm-hmm. spoken about as well. I didn't feel like that scene was needed, but however, Steve McQueen did. Um, but what I would say is, like, for me, Lover's Rock was an artistic piece that was meant to invoke nostalgia in people. It wasn't a feature film. And I think people approach Lover's Rock expecting a feature film. So people would say uh-huh. things like, that's not how it was. That's not representing it like this. I was looking right. for that. And because we don't have anything like that that adequately represents our culture, and it is very British West Indian. Very, very, very. <laughs> I cannot stress. From the way they're cooking the food at the yeah. beginning. Yeah. The, the sound man, systems my, being set up. All of that stuff. I used to help out with that stuff. Like in, uh, I grew up in Connecticut, in Hartford, Connecticut. And we didn't have the same sort of thing. But we had my all of our, like my parents' friends were their people they knew in Guyana. And they all kind yeah. of immigrated here together and lived near each other. So they would have these just crazy parties every night. And what up, set up. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, like for me, it, it it was artistic pieces that invoked nostalgia. It was bang on the money. But because we aren't represented in the ways in which we would like to be, we hold on to everything that comes out because it's a, it, that is the representation, right? So yeah. Yeah. you want, you, you deeply want this thing that comes out to represent what you feel like it is adequately but that's difficult to do because everyone's experiences a are individual and b we don't have enough material out there to provide balance so i think Mm -hmm. for me i approached it from an artistic perspective and i absolutely loved it i think some people approached it from a literal perspective and felt Mm. like things were missing if that makes sense i mean the fact that we can even have this conversation i think is you know amazing so i get that but yeah man it is it is a little frustrating because lover's rock feels like a tone poem, right? It's not a really plot heavy thing. It is just, you follow this girl going to this party and everyone is just feeling the vibe of this party, right? You see everything yeah. put together. One, I think my issue and the thing I keep seeing a lot over here from American critics is that everybody's being kind of uh, a bit flowery about it too. Like, man, this is a perfect escape. You know, it is a beautiful romantic movie and it is. <laughs> but I also think like, man, th- yeah, these people have created an oasis for themselves, you know, because if they step outside the edges of this party, right? There is a group of white people who are ready to, you know, beat people yeah. up. There's the cops kind of trying to bust in. There is, um, at one point, um, you, that still you happens see now. the guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because, man, at one point in that movie, like, you see um, one, of, one of the main characters, you run into his boss, who is just like, you know, a little short white guy. But the guy 
feels powerful enough to kind of demean him, yeah. you know, because he, he feels beneath. It's it's just all of this is very. Did telling, you catch the code it, switching as well? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that is something us as British West Indians. And this is a difference between us and say what goes on in America. Mm-hmm. So in the UK, um, the black community was built on West Indians for the most part. So mm-hmm. we, our colloquial language, the ways in which we speak are, are kind of brushed with West Indians, Jamaican specifically, but West Indian mm-hmm. tones. And I will go, I might say to my friend, Wagwan, you all right? We will talk like that when I'll maybe see a fellow black person. And then when I go into work, I might speak like that. But actually when I'm having a conversation with my friends, my tone will change completely. Mm-hmm. And that is mm-hmm. something that in Britain, and I'm sure you'd, you probably do it oh, in yeah. the US with, uh, yeah. you know, black, like African-Americans will probably do it with Ebonics or African-American um, vernacular, however it's defined, however people choose to define mm-hmm. it. It's that code switching. But, you know, when you're coming into your house, it's that thing of that is so deeply rooted in your identity. But then when you're faced in a professional setting or you're thrusted into a different setting, there's a part yeah. of your identity you almost have to leave at the door in order to a um navigate that space and be provided the respect to be provided the respect that you deserve and i think he he encapsulated that perfectly mm-hmm, mm-hmm, most definitely and uh the other thing about lover's rock is that it's just so it is short you know it's not even movie length do you have do you have feelings because uh, i also see one conversation having here um is people are saying are these tv episodes are these movies? Are these films? Does it does the distinction even matter to you? They are art, and that's all that matters yeah. to me. So yeah. it's like we we it's, sometimes I feel like we get over obsessed with what box should these fit in. Listen, mm-hmm. as a British West Indian person, this is visual art that's been made for me and for my community to consume. So whatever box people want to put them in, that's absolutely fine. Just sit down <laughs> and watch the thing, man, and chill out. You know what I mean? <laughs> i feel like yeah that, that is a, that's the overall vibe here let's talk about uh mangrove and, and by the way we're mainly gonna be talking about mangrove lovers rock and red white and blue uh alex weedle had just recently came out here in the u.s they're all streaming on amazon prime and education is his final film that just landed today too so i haven't had a chance to see those unfortunately yeah mm-hmm. i mean let's talk mm-hmm. you know go ahead go ahead go ahead Let's talk about Mangrove, man, because uh, I don't. Have you seen Aaron Sorkin's Chicago Seven? The Trial I of Chicago. Haven't. No, I haven't seen okay. that film yet. I have. I have issues with that movie because okay. that movie is all about. It is very much, you know, and uh, listeners like go back and listen to our full review of that film. But the thing that kind of irked me the wrong way about it is that it's a very like triumphant story about protesters told in like a very stock Hollywood way, and the protagonists are mainly, you know the white revolutionaries who kind of led that whole thing, but it doesn't, that movie doesn't say anything about revolutionary politics. You know, it is not very wise. And it does this weird thing too, where it tries to equate the people who are even trying to prosecute uh, the Chicago seven. Like it, it, it tries to make them sympathetic in some way, rather than just being, you know, pawns of the system that is absolutely racist. Uh, they even erase a character, actually one character. And the, a big part of that story is a black character who was, um, you know, a black man who was basically arrested with those folks. He was shackled. He was put in chains for several days in yeah. the jail while the trail was going on. And that's shown for like maybe 30 seconds in the movie and resolved in a very like Hollywood way. Like uh, people would say, no, this cannot stand. Mm. In reality, that stood for days. I mean, the movie <laughs> reflect that, you know? Yeah. 
it's always fun yeah. to touch on it and never quite touch on it, right? I'm like, if we're mm-hmm. going to delve into this, let's delve into it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we just shouldn't bother at all. Let's provide it the yeah. justice it deserves. Absolutely. And Mangrove just struck me as very similar, right? Because it is a movie also about a trial uh, following protests. You know, the Mangrove restaurant was known as this sort of community hub. The cops kept attacking it. And then mm-hmm. people protested to stand up for themselves. And things went as a lot of these protests go, like a, a protest, it can get heated. Several key people were arrested and the film follows their trial, um, including Letitia Wright, who's one of the, uh, one of the lead like progressives who's helping this protest. Was she a member of the Black Panthers? I believe. Yeah. You're I talking believe. about Alfie, Alfie, yeah. James McQueen. Mm-hmm. I met her. She's absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic. So that's beautiful. Yeah. So basically we went to uh, an exhibition that was exploring black Britishness in Brixton. My friend took me there. Big up Rihanna, um, Jade Parker. (laughs) (laughs) She's amazing. (laughs) Sorry. She's a contributing editor of Freeze, which is like a fine art magazine for those that know. Mm -hmm. Um, And she took me there. She takes me to all these great art things. And we went in there and Alfie, Alfie Jones LaQuint happened Mm -hmm. to be there. And just gave oh, wow. us, she was one of the leaders of the British Black Panthers. Like specifically, mm-hmm. she's one of the leaders. And she sat us down and gave us like an hour lecture. And it was just impromptu. She just decided that she was going to sit down and talk to us. Um, I know this Love is it. on a bit of a tangent, but she's just an amazing <laughs> woman. The way she spoke to us about organizing and supporting our communities and supporting each other was fantastic. But to delve back into the Mangrove Nine, we also have to understand that this is on the backdrop of a lot of tension in that area. So when you're looking at Notting Hill, the reason why we have Notting Hill Carnival was a was a result of a reaction to racism that existed in Britain. So in the 50s, essentially what happened is um, white racist groups, right? So we weren't, a- when black West Indians came here, they weren't able to find housing everywhere, right? So mm-hmm. there was these things up on doors that said no blacks no dogs no irish and you couldn't find anywhere to live and this was happening in the mid 60s to late 60s as well so Mm -hmm. notting hill was one of those areas that black people were able to get housing so uh, obviously black west indians descended on the area and when i say descended on i mean that in the most respectful way you know (laughs) when you have a friend there you know what i mean my friend just donged the road so you go there and you live by your friend right and everyone Mm -hmm. starts living in the same area so what essentially happened was it became a uh a largely West Indian populated area. And what then happened was the prime minister at the time was releasing these speeches that essentially was, he was saying things like, should we, should we riddle ourselves or with um, colored people problems, et cetera, et cetera. So it just built the tension. And then um, people descended on that area, white racist descended on that area, burning people's houses, beating up people. And it happened for a long time. So that's why Notting Hill Carnival happened. And it was in exactly the same area that Mangrove was. So we've got to understand that this lives within a backdrop of very specific anti-black racism that existed in the local area. Like it was really, really, really bad. And by the late 1960s, early 1970s, everyone just had enough. People had enough. So you could see that even law enforcement were targeting these communities. And Mangrove Mm -hmm. speaks to that. I don't want to ruin the film, but it just speaks to the, not the target just of the British public, but also those things that were meant to protect us. Things like the police, things like, you know, statutory organizations, they were attacking the community as well. And everyone just had enough. And these leaders came together to incite change. And that's why Mm -hmm. Mangrove, the Mangrove Nine are so important because what they did essentially was change 
attempt to change the direction or the future of black people in Britain. Like these were real, 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 like it feels like a film. And I, I'm, I guess I'm ranting a little bit here, but I just want people to understand how important this history is and these people are to us. And it's a story that has never been told. And that's why this is so important. I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm on my soapbox. No, no. Yeah. It's fine, please. I want you, like, man, I, I, I like to, like, sit back and listen to your shows because you are really articulating all these things, like, perfectly and things that I don't, I want to know more about, you know, as an American West Indian, we hear a very specific side of things and we don't hear much of what's happening in the yeah. Britain, unfortunately. Is this a well-known story, by the way? Like, is this something, is it taught in schools or people just know this or know, like, are taught about this growing up? Imagine it wasn't, it's not taught in schools. This is something okay. you have to of go. Course. So we have yeah. the kind of provisionary schools. So schools that are set up in the black community for young children mm -hmm. to go to on Saturdays, right? So it would be taught there. But when it comes to official schooling, so our national curriculum, this stuff isn't embedded at all. And this is a mm -hmm. very important part of British history. And people assume that the Black Panthers just existed in the US. And that just isn't the case. They existed right. here right. and they were very active, very, very active. Yeah. How effective do you think this is as as a protest film, too? Because I think w one thing that's been happening here in the U.S., especially after the Black Lives Matter protests, people are like, man, I, I want to believe I believe in equality. Right. But they shouldn't be destroying these buildings. You know, that poor Wendy's like, well, what about <laughs> what about the Wendy's? Uh, somehow that's equivalent to Black Lives. I think this movie captures the idea that um, protests can sometimes has to be a little confrontational for it to even get somewhere or make a difference i think of the end of uh do the right thing which is yeah. something that people don't people still don't get it they don't get why why you know a protest erupted and why so many things why spike lee's character had to destroy the police uh the pizza parlor you know like mm. there it's complicated it's and messy reaction to that as well yeah like, they would say that yeah. white people reacted one way to the pizza place yeah. being destroyed and black people reacted in a different way mm -hmm. i mean there there is a story here too like in the u.s like critics at the time especially white critics at like the new yorker and major institutions were saying like this movie's dangerous you know black populations will see this movie and start rioting in the streets and it's yeah people just don't get it you know they're afraid of when these stories are told in a way that seems real because to be to be seen and to be heard sometimes you have to you have to do something that people will actually take notice of, right? Absolutely. And I think it's important to acknowledge that that narrative within itself is racist because what those yeah. people are saying yeah. is the black community have an insatiable thirst for violence yes. and anything that speaks to the brutalness of our history. Let's not, don't acknowledge how brutal the history was. Just acknowledge how we might react to it. And that's a problem within itself because actually if you really want to create change or incite change, you just got to be honest about what existed. And when it comes to the Mangrove Nine, this wasn't just something that existed for a small number of black British West Indians. My dad came here in 1966. He experienced mm -hmm. the same racism. My uncle was beaten black and blue by the police for no reason. So this is something that really existed for many of us. And mm -hmm. when honestly, I cannot stress how much we are not taught this stuff. We just not, this is why this is so important. It's just something that yes. we are not taught about. It's yeah, buried. It's, uh... After, um, so I told my my parents to check out these movies and they started telling me stories I've never heard too. Like they, you know, people they knew from Guyana who came to the UK, shout out to Burbese, our, our little our little village Yo, town no over way. there. Your family's from Burbese as well. I was born oh, there, I was born there, man. Yo. I was born in a little house what? in Burbese, you know? 
<laughs> my, my family are from Burbies as well. Burbies and Buxton. Oh. Burbies. Yep, yep. That's crazy. <laughs> But they would tell me stories, man, about like, oh, yeah, we knew this guy who went over and, uh, oh, yeah, he was chased by a group of white racists and they, you know, chased him off a building and he died. Oh, wow. That is the stories they remember. Um, I had an uncle and my uncle, my grandfather's brother, w- was the guy. Like, usually every family would have one person who can make it to the UK, who can afford to go there and get his schooling, right? And he raised his kids there. They eventually moved to Canada. So that is sort of like how you chart a lot of the migration of West Indians too. Yeah. Uh, hey, we end up all over the world because of this. Yeah. Um, but that, like he had, even he was telling us like, you know, they just didn't, they didn't really have many friends. You know, they didn't have people who could take care of their kids. It was a very isolating experience from them. And uh, it, I think this movie captures the way the West Indian community had to come together in a Absolutely. very, in a very real and specific way. Also, want to shout out to uh, Sean Parks in this film, who plays Frank Critchlow, the owner of the Mangrove. What a towering performance! I don't think yeah. I've never seen the guy in a lead role. And I also think the series is bringing up the idea that oh man, there's so many, there's so many actors who never get the chance to to be themselves, right? Because this Absolutely. guy. He's an actor. He's been in Lost in Space, the the crappy Netflix series. He's been in like a, a lot of like different things. He's a working actor, but never as like a a lead who has like a major major voice and a role. And I love him in this film because he captures. He's a guy who doesn't really want to be, you know, the face of the community in a way. Like he just wants to run his little restaurant, and he kind of reluctantly comes into the fact that oh he's his his building his presence stands for something right yeah. like mangrove means something to people and he that realization is such a major part of the film for him and that's the thing it kind of lends itself to what you were talking about as well about um you know change and the fight against racism and oppression mm-hmm. being confrontational at times and there's just some people who aren't confrontational but because mm-hmm. of what happens you're forced to be you don't have a choice and i think he did a stellar performance in portraying that and I don't know if that's I've not I've not heard from Frank specifically, uh-huh. so I don't know if that was his direct character. I can imagine there was research done, but there are people like that. They're like, "Yo, like I am not a confrontational person, but this means yeah. so much to me, and this is so important to my community. I have no choice." So I think you mm-hmm. know that was a he played a really important role in understanding that racism forces you to make a decision that is sometimes outside of your natural personality. That is the mm-hmm. violence of racism. It's not just about being shouted at and being brutalized in the street. Sometimes it's about it shapes and changes your character. You you change for necessity. Not because you want to, but it's a necessity. You have to put yourself in certain positions. And that's the confrontational nature of it. If it meets you with confrontation, sometimes you have to meet it with the same confrontation back. And if it's Mm -hmm. insidious and embedded into everything, sometimes you don't have a choice. You do what you have to do at the time. It's funny because that reflects just so many things today too. Because I... I, you know, I have people in my family who just aren't as, you know, politically concerned because yeah. they didn't, I grew, I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, which is a city, right? It is a city with uh, all the white people left pretty much a couple decades ago. And I went to school <laughs> with mostly like black and round people. Like I am fully used to like trying to fight for diversity and these communities that America has completely pretty much has forgotten. Now I'm outside of Georgia. And it is really funny to be, or outside of Atlanta, it's really funny to be here now, too, because apparently our entire government hinges on these two votes. If mm-hmm. we can, you know, sway, swing the Senate uh, for the Democrats. Um, but even here, like being here in Georgia, it is fascinating to see like, man, 
people are just doing everything they can to stop people from being able to vote. You know, like yeah. so much of Republican and conservative politics in America is just taking taking people's voices away and mm. winning you know, by that way. And I have people in my family who still don't can't admit that something is wrong here. And I think Mangrove kind of captures that tension, or at least the idea that you have to step up at some point and fight for fight against injustice. I think this movie captures that really well. Um, let's move on to Red, White, and Blue, by the way, because I do feel like this takes it in a, in a different way because um, this is a film um, about uh, a young man who decides to join London's Metropolitan Police Force. So it is a, it's a very specific choice that he's making. He's not as reluctant about it. It stars John Boyega as Leroy Logan, a real-life policeman who went through this experience. And he's joining the force in, what, the 80s, you know, at a time where the the clashes between the police and the black community are at an all-time high. His own father is attacked by cops. Uh, In the film, it's portrayed, like, basically in a way that seems completely unjust. And I I wouldn't be surprised if that's actually what happened. That happened to my uncle. It's happened to family, friends. It's honestly, that is what was happening inside this country. Definitely, mm-hmm. 100%. They take you in and you get beaten up in the back of a van. Ugh. Um, this film, so what John Boyega's character does, right? Leroy Logan, he he is less reluctant. He is more, I'm going to challenge the system, right? I'm going to challenge the system by joining the force, trying to fix it from the inside. It is one of the first things he says, like when they ask him if he wants to join the force. And he finds out that's incredibly difficult and very hard. But I was fascinated by this movie because... We also don't normally see, you know, the lone person trying to change systems like this. And also it's realistically reveals that you you really can't, you know, you can make your difference. But I think ultimately it is it is very difficult to to change an inherently racist system. Absolutely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I just I, the, I had the pleasure of interviewing Leroy Logan, actually, um, for a podcast, interestingly, that kind of looked at <laughs> what happened before and what happened afterwards. What, what, which podcast, by the way? Um, it's Small Axe, the podcast. So it's out on um, BBC Sounds. It might be on like Spotify and Apple as well. I'm not 100% okay. sure. It's okay. definitely available on BBC, BBC Sounds. BBC is making so many podcasts, but yeah. It's wild, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. But yeah, like speaking to him, I was just saying like, after my, if my dad had been brutalized by the police, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't do that. Like I, I personally mm-hmm. couldn't go into the force following that. And that's why it was really interesting to speak to him Um, and that's the beauty of film right I think you know you mentioned it it, when we spoke about Lovers Rock Mangrove it's how it's able to cement a memory cement a moment in history and provide context so we can sit here and talk about these things all day but the beauty of films and films that are based on real life stories when done well is actually they provide the context for the decisions that people made and that is very important there's a Mm -hmm. difference between information and the context around the information given and I think Red White and Blue does that to a degree. What it does is it gives you some insight into why he made the decisions that he made and how decisions that you feel like are best for you potentially can destroy the relationships that you have with your family. And you see in the film, like, I mean, I'm giving away spoilers. I'm not going to say that. I'll just leave that there. (laughs) Well, it's not a huge, like this decision, right? To join the cops. And it's like somebody who, you know, right now decides to become a policeman in the middle of the black lives matter protests like you would be seen as a traitor of your community right people would kind of turn their backs to you and the movie explores like how he kind of doesn't win from any any angle right the cops 
are you know writing racist things on his lockers and they're treating him like garbage he has one friend in the forest like a young uh indian cop it looks like and um his family kind of turns against him his community thinks he's a traitor but it's a really interesting film because it's about this one guy like he believes that he he it's really his will to yeah. kind of take on take on all these licks and kind of <laughs> make a change you know man like he is it's cost him so much this guy was going to be a forensic scientist and it was great to see john boyega uh, in an early scene as just like a guy leading a lab you know a really buff looking strong guy you know yeah. but a guy who's doing fundamentally very difficult scientific work and he decides to be a beat cop and it is um it, it was strange to see also really funny to see um, John Boyega in this film now because he was also such a prominent voice during the protests in London, Absolutely. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. And that happened before Small Axe, right? So this was yeah, filmed yeah. before... Um, th- th- sorry, yeah. So the protests happened following that. He filmed this yeah. long before. So I think it was two years in production, I think, if I remember rightly. Um, but yeah, it just shows how ingrained this stuff is in Black British culture, right? So I, I don't think this is always considered so... Imagine there's only 1 million black people in Britain. I think it's 1.5 or 1 million, if I remember rightly. Um, We're all connected in some way, you know, and this stuff really is a portrayal of our history. So John Baega, I'm coming from a place like Peckham, which is Mm -hmm. a real strongly, and I live in the area just next to Peckham. um, And my area has a very high proportion of black people as well, black West Indians specifically, but Peckham is more black West African. But, um, you know, there's an embedded there's an embedding of experience in the character that he played. Like there's a cultural reference to what he did, right? There's a, there, obviously there is a um, generational difference, but for John Baega is able to pull on some references that he's had through growing up in London, essentially, um, as to why he made the, as to why Leroy Logan was able to make the decisions that he made. There's this kind of unsaid thing that lots of us experience that we can relate to. So we're all very different. Mm-hmm. But there is this kind of thread that runs through black Britishness. And I saw that in Leroy Logan. There were decisions that he made that, for me, I would have never made in a million years, to be quite honest. (laughs) But effectively, what his character also does is provide some insight into his life. And all of us, and I'm sure John Mayer as well, was able to read into that character and say, oh, that sounds like me. That sounds like a decision I wanted to make. This kind of racism is so insidious and it's so around us that we are called to do things sometimes that don't make sense to anybody else around us. And I feel like red, white, and blue encapsulates that. So whether you agree with the decision Leroy Logan made or not, you have an understanding for the reasons why he made the decisions that he did. It speaks to something inside of us, regardless of how we feel about the police force. Yeah. He treats it like a calling. And I found his, his strength of character in that respect, like Boyega just does a great job of this. I, Man, I thought this guy was going to be a star ever since Attack the Block, right? You watch that movie and you're like, man, Moses, this character, there's so much, he has so much uh, embodied around him. And then when he got cast in Star Wars, it was like, of course. And now it is also really fascinating to see him kind of rail against his Star Wars experience too, because his character was kind of sidelined in the last two films and certainly um, the very final film. Like he is just, he is pissed and he is not afraid to say it about what they did to uh to finn um does so, anyone want to talk about why they did that to finn or are we just gonna add uh-huh. like, we don't know you know like- <laughs> yeah yep. yep. anyway. and uh man it, it was a fascinating thing to see here too because star wars fans weren't great they they were not great to a lot of the characters of color that were added especially uh kelly marie tran she faced a lot of hate from this yes it is, 
man, even in pop culture, we cannot escape the same cycles of, uh, of harassment and racism too. And man, that's one reason I also really appreciate small acts because it is, it's not shying away from these stories. And Steve McQueen, I feel like is somebody he, he is confronting it. He's daring to ask these questions and tell these stories. And I really appreciate that about him. Any closing thoughts, Richie, about this and kind of what you're looking forward to next from Steve McQueen? Because I love that he is just doing these very specific stories. Yeah, definitely. I'm really sorry that I tend to derail the conversation it's into fine. Fine. politics and like lived experience. So we're meant to be here Everything talking about politics, man. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I appreciate what you're saying. Um, I think for me, it's the beauty of seeing this through an artistic lens and the, also the importance of British so people living in Britain, because again, this isn't black history specifically that Steve McQueen's mm-hmm. tackling. It is British history, right? So it's something that all people in Britain need to see. And it's also a part of the West Indian diasporic experience. Mm-hmm. So for me, I would urge anyone when it comes to understanding communities to watch a film like this, watch a film series like this, because it isn't just great in the way that it's made and the characters, but it's just beautifully artistic. Right. There are so many lessons in that, but it's also so pleat, like the color grading. It just mm-hmm. it's just for me, I cannot wait to see more films that a explore um, situations and issues and communities in a very deep way in the way that Steve McQueen does. But also with that artistic element, because it's something that I don't mm-hmm. always see and I absolutely love it. Yeah, I, I think these films it is wild that over the past two years, he has just been or several years, he has made effectively five films, which are all very different, but kind of threading the needle around the West Indian experience. And I, I love him so much for tackling these stories. We haven't talked much about the technical aspects. And one thing I do appreciate is that all these films look different. Uh, there are some interviews with the director of photography, too, who is also West Indian, um, about just the different ways they shot it, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's all kind of fascinating too. Like it all, the texture of it, Lover's Rock was shot on digital so they could really get in there on the dance floor and have like a very, you know, real live live experience. Um, I was listening to him. He did an interview for the New York uh, Film Festival where Small Axe was the, uh, basically the premiere. Lover's Rock was the first film that they showed. And Steve McQueen was saying like, there, there's a moment in that film where people just, the audience kind of gets swept up in a song. They get swept up in silly games and they kind of go off you know, and they sing and they like do it a cappella for mm-hmm. several minutes. And Steve McQueen said that that, that, that he didn't plan that. He kind of just followed the crowd, right? He followed the actors because this is what they were doing. He was following the spirit of the moment. And I, I appreciate the fact that, man, this is a guy who makes very complex, very specific, um, you know, films and he is very meticulous, but these films also show him kind of being a little more loose, you know, and being a yeah. more a bit more of an organic artist. And I really, it is fascinating to see him evolve too as an artist. Absolutely. And for me, them films look like family pictures. <laughs> and that's what I think was beautiful about that. You know, the technical a- aspect, because there's a kind of, what's that word I'm looking for when you look at something in it? Nostalgic. There's a nostalgic aspect. And those the, the way he was able to do that technically capture those family photos through film. I just think mm-hmm. it, it's beautiful. And I don't often see it done like that. And I've never seen it done for um black British West Indian communities. I've Most just never seen I'm, it. 
I'm looking for it. Like, I hope like there's more, more of an exploration and maybe, maybe from you, Richie, I don't, I don't know what's in your future, but man, there, there aren't many people telling the stories about West Indians. I think like there's one famous author, right? It's a uh, BS Naipaul who he is like the one guy who was able to go, go back and tell stories about Trinidad and some of his stories were turned into movies and he's more about the Indo-Caribbean experience, but yeah. still there's not, there's not much, there's really not much. So, you know, shout out to Steve McQueen. I'm glad he's able to make these films. Richie, anything else you want to say about small, small acts or what Steve McQueen is accomplishing here? Everyone that needs to go out and watch it. <laughs> and, support the cause. and I just like with these films, sometimes it's like, there's a big buzz around them. And then once the buzz is over, over the support starts to end. And I, my issue with like films like this is when, when the support starts to dwindle, um, you don't see them ever again, you know? So for mm -hmm. me, it's the importance of supporting films like this and not expecting a blockbuster movie every time you sit in front of a cinema screen or a TV yeah. screen. Allow people who direct movies to be artistic and open your mind to accept different types of films. I'm a lover of film, right? So I like independent films. I like action movies. I like horror movies. I like documentaries, all of it. And I think we're going to have our favorite genres, right? But when we walk into spaces, open your mind to accept different parts of cinema because essentially it's moving art. And I feel like sometimes we need to come from that lens. This person is experiencing, the, is portraying themselves or portraying something from a personal artistic perspective. And we need to give them space to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Steve Thank McQueen you so does much. it perfectly. Perfectly, perfectly. I... I've always loved him as an artist, man, but especially after these films, it's like he is he is one of my favorite living directors now because just so much he deserves so much credit for taking his clout, his Oscar clout, you know, and doing this. And a lot of people just waste that potential. And he is not like he he is not shying away from this. Richie, thank you so much for joining us on the Slash Filmcast. Where can we find you on the internet? Because you're all over the place, man. Yeah, I am Richie Brave, R-I-C-H-I-E-B-R-A-V-E on all platforms. So that's me. Nice and simple. And um, I, for those of you in the UK, I have a podcast 9 till 10 p.m. called One Extra Talks on One Extra, BBC One Extra, sorry. Um, and that explores the realities of Black British people. And there's podcasts nice. everywhere, as you said. <laughs> Yeah, podcasts everywhere. You did a. I also want to shout out, like you did this great. Is it was it for the BBC? This like panel about cancel culture and kind of how uh, does it exist? I don't know. I, I kind of came down on your side where it seems like uh, th this is a joke. Why are we even talking about cancel culture where it seems yeah. more like? Uh, people facing consequences for doing stupid things, you know? Exactly. So you're going to be transphobic, you're going to be homophobic, but you don't <laughs> expect people to vote with their feet. So what, we should just sit there and listen to it? No. People don't want to be held responsible for the absolute bollocks that they talk. But this is 2020. So bullying culture is something we definitely need to address mm -hmm. because it happens mm -hmm. online, absolutely. But cancel culture, I don't see the consequences for people. You can do all sorts and still be supported tomorrow. So... I mean, it's a boring conversation. Let's <laughs> I'm over it. <laughs> it was a, it was a good chat, and I was I was happy to see you like talking sense, basically, man. So I appreciate that. Uh, as always, everybody, you got you guys can find me online at Twitter at, at Devendra and uh, I write about tech at Engadget.com. Stay tuned for more from the Slash Filmcast. Richie Brave, thank you so much. Devendra, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me.